Let's open our copies of God's Word to the 90th Psalm. Psalm 90. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, you have given to us your word. It is sovereign in authority over our lives as your people. We would bow before it, bow our thoughts and our affections and our wills, and we pray that it will be a tremendous encouragement to us to dwell upon your eternal nature. But Father, also we know that because you are the eternal God, that in essence you are eternal, therefore your heaven will be an eternal heaven and hell an eternal hell. And we pray for those who may be among us that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that the sovereign work of the Spirit will draw them out of darkness and into light. And now, Father, as we turn to this grand psalm, we ask that you will strengthen our hearts by it and help us to be to be wonderfully intrigued by the God who has made covenant with us, our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable and sovereign Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, we pray. Amen. Let us stand for the reading of God's word, the 90th Psalm. This is the word of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have just read together the oldest psalm in the Psalter. It was written by Moses, the man of God. And it is a psalm that dwells upon God's eternal nature, the brevity of our lives and the beauty of God's majesty, the eternal nature of God. Now, when I was a boy of maybe five or six years of age, I had a discussion with a chaplain in a hospital about God's eternal nature. My grandfather was in the Veterans Administration Hospital. He was paralyzed completely on one side. It's the only way I ever knew him. We were in Macon. He was in Dublin. I don't know how my mom did it, but every Sunday we would go to worship. We would come home. She'd have the Sunday spread, you know, the roast and the potatoes and all that. And then we would get in the car and we would go and see my grandfather down in Dublin. Well, there was a chaplain there, and I asked him the question, who made God? Where did God come from? I already had figured out that in the created order, there were succession of moments. I knew that there must be this cause and effect relationship, and so I wanted to know who caused God. Well, I don't remember receiving a very good answer from the chaplain. I think he said to me, I don't know if my memory serves me correctly. Now, what he should have said to me is, young man, God has always been. God is eternal. He had no cause. He has always been. He always will be. He is self-contained. He needs nothing and no one outside of himself. And I was a small boy, and my mind was whirling with these thoughts and questions, and I'm older now, and my mind still whirls with these thoughts and questions. Moses was led to dwell in this psalm upon the eternality of God, and I am so glad that the Lord, by divine inspiration, has given to us this psalm and that God included it in the canon of sacred scripture. And I will say right from the start that every one of us who is going through the depths of trouble will find, if our hearts are open to it, tremendous encouragement about that eternal nature of God and how it relates to our lives as we move along in the psalm. Now, the first thing we see is this, four truths about God's eternal nature. Four truths about God's eternal nature. First, we read in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Comparing Psalm 93, verse 2, Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. The first thing we learn about God's eternal nature is that God had no beginning. Now, the next thing we learn about God's eternal nature is that he will have no ending. Again, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then we learn from this text that God is timeless, Again, in verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. In other words, before he created time, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. And so God's eternity is described to us in the only terms available to human beings to describe God's eternality which is in the language of time. Eternity is described 
and the language of time. The timeless God is expressed to us in this condescending language that we find here in the psalm. God accommodates himself to us so that we can understand something of what it means that God is timeless. And so we read, of course, in 2 Peter that a thousand, a thousand years are to God as but one day. We read here, it says a watch in the night, which means three hours. There are four watches in the night, three hours each. What is being told us here is that it's incomprehensible. God is timeless. You see, there is no succession of moments in the character of God. In his own being, there is no before and there is no after. Augustine says rightly that God did not create in time, but with time. That is to say, he created time itself. Anselm prayed correctly, neither yesterday nor today nor tomorrow thou art, but simply thou art outside all time. If there were no creature, there would be no time. God is not a creature, but he is the creator. He is not subject to time, and he is not subject to space. And so this beautiful verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is conscious of the passage of a thousand years in his creation. He is not conscious of the passing of a thousand years in himself. If God were temporal, then he also would necessarily be spatial. But God is not temporal and he is not spatial. That would contradict God's infinitude. Infinity applied to space is omnipresence. Infinity applied to time is eternality. And so the being of God, the creator of time, God then knows all things and he knows all things at once. Now all illustrations of divine things are, are fall short. But you can think of it this way. If you're standing and watching a parade and you're on the ground, then the parade is coming to you and the parade arrives and the parade is gone. There is a succession of time, a succession of moments. And that's the way we know our lives. That's how we know time. But if you were in the bandstand, you would see all things at once. Now that's a feeble illustration of what it means that God in his eternality knows all things simultaneously. And because there is such a poor doctrine of God in the lives of many Christians and unhappily in many pulpits, it has practical implications. The one I always think of when I turn to this psalm is I read the experience of a family and a pastor who came to them a number of years ago. There was a death of a child in the family. And the pastor was thinking, how can I comfort this family? And so he went to this family and he threw his arms around them and he said, I don't know why this has happened. And right now, I don't think God does either. Well, you see, in his attempt to comfort the family, he removed all comfort. He is telling them they live in a chance and random universe. He is telling them that there's no purpose in this. No, no. God is the infinite Eternal God, he is never surprised. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. So let your minds and hearts be possessed of a high biblical view of who God is. He is not limited. 
He is not circumscribed by space. He is not limited. He is not circumscribed by time. He is perfectly blessed. He needs nothing outside of himself. He is not determined by the changing whims of people or the vicissitudes of those things that we face in life. Our security as believers is founded in God's eternality. But we learn something else about God's character. We learn that God is unchangeable. Now, the contrast here is with man. Man's breath is in his nostrils. Time with its changes is the measure of man's existence. But God is eternal, and if he is eternal, he also is unchangeable. Verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. This is who you are. This is who you always have been and always will be. You are God. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Scripture then teaches us that God is unchangeable. But someone says, doesn't the Bible speak of God repenting, changing his mind? Yes, but again, he is accommodating himself to our understanding. This is not a change in God's character. It is a change in his relation to his creatures. God's character, God's purpose, God's plan, God's decree, God's faithfulness never change. The change is not in God's character, but in the circumstances of his providence. And even in the incarnation, when Christ came into this world, there was no change in God's being. God assumed human nature, but he did not cease being God. God's trustworthiness is wrapped up with his unchangeable nature. So how could you trust God were he not this God revealed in sacred scripture? How could you trust a God who changes like a chameleon? But your God does not change. We read in James 1.17, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, you ladies, some of you, will be studying the book of James soon. I hope you'll spend a lot of time talking through that verse and what it means for Christian living. And by the way, Manton is still the best thing ever written on James, if you want a reference. But is there some believer here this morning that needs to take heart in the fact that your covenant God does not change? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. And it is because God is eternal and immutable that God can say what he does in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God is the dwelling place of his people, and he always has been the dwelling place of his people. What our fathers have known and experienced God to be in the past, he has been from the beginning. God has not ceased to be with his people, and he will preserve his people now. And so he contrasts himself with the unchangeableness of created things. Calvin, in his usual helpful way, says this, The everlastingness of which Moses speaks is to be referred not only to the essence of God, but also to his providence by which he governs the world. Although he subjects the world to many alterations, he remains unmoved. And that not only in regard to himself, but also in regard to the faithful who find from experience that instead of wavering, he is steadfast in his power, truth, righteousness, and goodness, 
even as he has been from the beginning. And since God is everlastingly the refuge of his people, then we also learn from this verse that we actually should include in our prayers generations yet unborn. We should pray that they know this faithful God, that because he has always been for all generations this God, then we pray for those yet to be born. Now that's what we learn about God from this text. It's magnificent, isn't it? It's heady, isn't it? It's vertiginous, isn't it? But the second thing we learn is this. Man contrasted with the eternal God. Man contrasted with the eternal God. And Moses, the man of God, who by divine inspiration wrote Genesis 3, where we learn of the fall of mankind into sin, Moses, the man of God, contemplates man under the curse of the fall. And this is what he says about us fallen human beings. He says in verse 3 that we're dust. Look at it. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And can't you hear the reference to Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of man has been recorded that we read, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses is simply reflecting upon what already has been written by divine inspiration about the fall of man. Now, it used to be that we would stand by a grave, and we would understand, as Spurgeon put it, God resolves and man dissolves, a word created and a word destroyed. And there we would be by the grave, and there would be a coffin with a body, in the, with, with, with a body inside. We would lower the coffin into the ground. We would cast clods of dirt upon the coffin, and we would recite this verse from Genesis chapter 3, reflected here in the 90th Psalm, along with promises of the resurrection to come. And we have not gained by laying aside this simple and wonderful ceremony. We need to be reminded that we are dust and we will return to dust. But then he also says the changes in our lives are swift. And I will simply point out in verse 5, he compares our lives to a dream. In verses 5 and 6, our lives are like grass, sown, grown, mown, and gone. In verse 9, he says that our lives are like a sigh. Other scriptures speak of these swift changes in life that are the result of the fall of man. A weaver's shuttle, Job 7, 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is like a breath. Read boats that you would see passing down the Nile, Job 9, 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. Our lives are compared to a tent that it will be struck, 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know if the tent of our earthly body is destroyed, and a powerful one to me. Our lives are like vapor, we are told again in the book of James chapter 4, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is like a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. You take your cup of coffee on a cold morning, you put it in the windowsill, and it's covered with vapor. You take it away, and the vapor is gone. That's your life. It's like that because of the fall. 
The swift changes. God is eternal, man is transient. Now, deserving a point all its own is this, the third point. Man is under God's wrath. Notice verses 7 and 9. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. And in verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh. So again, Moses contemplating the fall of man, dwelling upon Genesis 3, man before the fall was not under God's wrath, but all men are born under God's wrath. All men born by ordinary generation are under his wrath and curse since the fall. Man before the fall, new change, but change was good. And upward, but oh, the sorrow of our sin, the changes are now described in terms of the curse. Our mortality is not accidental. Our sin is the scythe which mows us down, and we wither under the blazing sun of the wrath of Almighty God. And the descriptions in this text of the effects of the fall are indeed profound and moving, especially to me in verses 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And so again, a sigh, a short life, toil and trouble, transience, and in verse 5, We are told that our lives are carried away like a flood. Now, all of this is true and must be stressed in biblical proportion. And I think one of the most amazing things about the fall of man is that a lost sinner, undone, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not been redeemed, whose heart has not been regenerated by the Spirit of God, can hear about the eternal nature of God and be unmoved can hear about an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, can hear about the sufficiency of what Christ has done to save us from an eternal hell, can hear all of these things. We are so sottish and stupid in our sin that we can hear these things and remain unmoved until God the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and regenerates us. So all of this is true. But thank God the psalmist does not stop there. And the fourth thing we see is this. The eternal God is a God of grace. The eternal God is a God of grace. And so he says in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Now, don't you find it remarkable, given the fallen state of man, that he can pray for pity and expect it? The psalmist counts on the mercy of God. How can he count on the mercy of God? Well, the text gives us two answers. The psalmist can count on the mercy of God because since God is eternal, his love is eternal. We read in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We have an eternal God, and of his love we read in verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This eternal God is a God of steadfast love. Therefore, His love must be an eternal love. And this is the point of verse 1. 
that God is a God to his people faithfully in all generations. He loves his people. So what you and I need is an eternal refuge, a shelter, a sanctuary, so that come what may, you know and I know that we are safe. God says, that's who I am. That's who I am for my people. I am that eternal refuge. I love my people. I have always loved my people. I always will love my people. All of these things are true of fallen humanity, but I am a God of grace. I am the dwelling place, untouched by the fingers of decay. I love my people. I love my people. My love is steadfast love. And I ask the question, why? Given my heart's rebellion, given my natural hatred of you, given my hard-heartedness, given the fact that I have turned from you, that I am fallen in Adam, why would you love your people? And the answer that the Bible gives is not because of anything within me, not because of anything within you. God loves his people because he loves his people. And the ground doesn't get any deeper than that. And so this God of grace is turned to by the psalmist. And he says, I can count on his mercy because his love is eternal love. But also, the psalmist can count on God's mercy because the eternal God may be trusted He may be trusted. He's proven himself, verse 1, to every generation. Now, I don't always understand. I don't know what is happening in my life. The changes can be swift and difficult and hard. Everything else may change around me, but God and his truth remain the same. Isaiah 26, verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Another text comes to mind, also the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 33, 27, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. From the ends of the earth will I cry unto thee, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I says the psalmist in another place. So when changes come quickly, when they hurt, when they're painful, when I don't understand, or when I am old and gray and perhaps can hardly move, whatever the change, he will not change. His love will not change. He can be trusted to keep his promises to us, his people. Underneath are the everlasting arms, and we can lean heavily, completely, on his all-sufficient love and his promises. My safety then, the safety of my soul, thank God, does not depend upon me. For if it did, I would lose my salvation a thousand times every moment. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. On what does your eternal safety depend? Your eternal safety depends upon the eternal nature of God who promises to his people, I will love you always. I've proven it in the cross. Every generation has found me faithful, and you are not going to be an exception to that. The judgment then of the eternal God that I deserve 
I'm safe from that eternal judgment when my faith is in Jesus Christ. Because the judgment of the eternal God on my sins in his Son is of eternal value because the eternal Son of God assumed human nature and paid the price for my sin, which I deserve to pay forever. It's paid. And when God saves a sinner, God saves a sinner. It's everlasting because it flows from his eternal being, his eternal love, and his eternal plan. But then fifthly, since God is eternal, then we as his people need to learn something. Since God is eternal, then we need to number our days. Or to put it another way, since God is eternal, only what is done for him will last. Notice verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, to number our days doesn't mean to calculate how many days I have left. It means I'm going to make each day count for God. Why do we set our affections? Christian, I'm talking to you. Why do we set set our affections on passing things that don't matter, that will not last? Why do we set our affections on things? I'm talking about ultimate affections. Why do we set our affections on things that pass away? Is that not to waste ourselves? A short life should be wisely spent. You know that old saying, I've only one life will soon be passed, only what is done for Jesus will last? Well, that's true. Let me give you young people a very practical way to apply this. Some of you want to marry. That's a good thing. You're going to have affection for for someone who that may be your, your husband or your wife. Some young ladies dreaming about getting married someday. Good desire. Right thing. But who will that person be? Think of marrying. Will it make us both better servants of Jesus? Will I spend my life better for God? Will I spend my life in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ will be honored and uplifted? Is it going to make me a better servant of Jesus or not? Apply the text to those sorts of questions and answers. I know that some of you have skipped rocks on a pond. Have you ever, when you were a a boy, a little girl, taken a rock? Maybe some of you big guys do it. I don't know. You take a rock, you throw it out, and what happens? It splashes, and then you see all the little waves, the ripples that come to the shore. Well, that's our lives. Every time we do anything, any time we act, everything I do causes a ripple that will lap upon the shore of eternity. Now, remember, a short life should be well spent. And verse 17 tells us that God can establish the work of our hands. The New Testament equivalent of that is when we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, at the end of the discussion of the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the believer in the last day, we are told, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of this, therefore, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what we learn from Psalm 90 as Christians is, my time belongs to God. My life is in his hands. I'm only going to live a short while. There is eternity before me. And so I am to seize opportunities for Christ. Great men are known for seizing opportunities and having method and order to life. So let the truth of God's character regulate your life. Don't be preoccupied with the seduction of self-will and self-focus and worry and other thieves of time. J.I. Packer in uh, the Puritan Papers mentions Richard Rogers, the Puritan pastor of uh, Wethersfield, Essex, at the turn of the 16th century. He was riding one day with a local lord of the manor, and that lord of the manor was twitting him with... with, um, concern over the Puritans' precision. Why are you being so precise in all of your ways? That is to say, why do you have a method to living? Why are you careful in your Christian walk? Why are you so precise? Oh, sir, replied Rogers, I serve a precise God, was his answer. Packer goes on to say, if there were such a thing as a Puritan crest, this would be its proper motto, a precise God, a God that is, who has made precise disclosure of his mind and will in Scripture, and who expects from his servants a corresponding preciseness of belief and behavior. It was this view of God that created and controlled the historic Puritan outlook. The Bible itself led them to it. And we who share the Puritan estimate of Holy Scripture cannot excuse ourselves if we fail to show a diligence and conscientiousness equal to theirs in ordering our going according to God's written word. Now, Packer is absolutely right, and that's a result of understanding God's eternal nature. We today think it's legalism in the church to have method and carefulness in the Christian walk. Well, that just shows the decline in the church. That seeking to honor God in all things is considered legalism, but it's not. Seeking to honor God in all things and to walk carefully and precisely before Him is not legalism. It is the response of a saved heart to grace. Now, I want to bring this to a conclusion, this brief look at this psalm with maybe three applications that I want to bring home. The first one is this, I especially would direct the hearts of believers in Jesus who are undergoing terribly hard things to remember the eternal and the immutable nature of God. God, first of all, is never surprised. We are, he is not. God's purpose, secondly, is perfect. Even if it does not appear to us to be perfect, his way, his plan for us is perfect. To whom would the cross of Jesus have seen the perfect plan? But it was, and there has been no greater suffering than this. And then thirdly, as I direct your hearts to Jesus undergoing hardship, God's character is dependable. It really is. His character is dependable. And then, another thing I would say to us in light of the wonder of this psalm, is that we believers in Jesus should be captivated with his character, captivated with this God, captivated with the beauty of your living and true and triune God. And in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, is really a weak translation. 
Better is let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us or the delight of the Lord our God be upon us. And what the psalmist is doing is directing you to the beauty of God's character. Do you delight in it? Do you find it beautiful? And then he says that beauty is upon you. In union with Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again, you are beautiful in his sight. The beauty of the Lord God is upon his people. And so I would ask you to be captivated with the beauty and to delight in the wonder of what it means that this God is who he is and to love him simply for who he is, not only for what he has done. And in the light of that, I want to challenge the Christian to do something. Let me begin with an example from church history. There were so many, it was hard to decide, and I'm actually just deciding now which one to do. There was a man who was 20 years old who observed a 13-year-old girl who later became his wife. And after seeing her, learning about her, and observing her, he wrote this on the flyleaf of a book. They say, all you children, this girl was 13 years old. They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world. That there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. That she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the riches of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections, is most just and conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you could give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Well, most of you know that was Sarah Pierpont. The observant 20-year-old was Jonathan Edwards, and this young woman at 13 years old had learned the secret of meditating upon God. No wonder the great and the godly Jonathan Edwards was attracted to this young lady, Sarah, who after a few years would become his wife. So I want to challenge every believer here to get your spiritual priorities right, both in public and in private worship. And since we stress public worship so often, let me stress private worship and personal meditation on the attributes and character of God at this moment. Let me stress private worship to build in much time cultivating in your life private prayer and Bible reading, to get to know your God, to shut off the television, to cut off the electronic devices, 
not to think that you have to have 20 texts per second or always be with people to learn how to quiet your soul before God, to learn the discipline of putting your mind on eternal things, things that are worthy of the believer in Christ, worthy of the mind that God has given you, worthy of the heart that he has regenerated, to set aside the constant world of these things and to meditate upon his infinite nature and upon his character and to grow in spiritual power upon your knees. I challenge you one and all, young and old, male and female, I challenge you to do this and not only to respond to this for a day or two or a week or two or a month or two and then back to bad habits, I challenge you that this be your lifestyle as long as God gives you breath. I challenge you to know the joy, for it's no burden, but to know the joy of personal communion with God. And if you're really a believer in Jesus Christ, something way down deep will say, yes, I really want this. I really want this. Time alone with God. Time to know God. That will provide for my heart the rationale for how I spend the rest of my life and the rest of my time. I want to know this God. Do you want to know this God? This eternal, infinite God? Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's people said, Amen. Amen.